Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Today I'm welcoming back one of my favorites, the author of Peckerwood and Fierce Bitches, a blogger at his own terrific site, Hardboiled Wonderland, my friend and Pandemic Movie Club buddy, Mr. Jed Ayers. Jed, I want to thank you so much for being here. You're one of my dearest friends and it's always such a joy to talk about movies with you. So how are you doing and how has this year been treating you? I'm doing I'm doing fine thanks thanks for having me back you, of course there are uh, many reasons why you're near and dear to me and uh I don't want to cheapen anything by telling everybody <laughs> out in podcast land why you're such a good friend but you're a good friend and it's good to talk to you and uh thanks for having me back cuz this is literally what like I don't uh, I go on other podcasts sometimes and they want me to talk about, uh, you know, promote myself. I'm like, well, there's really nothing to promote. I haven't written a book in years and uh, I'm not planning on it at this point. And I'm, you know, I don't write a blog anymore. All I do is watch movies and I look forward to going on uh, shows like yours and being able to talk about them. So that's all yeah. I do. It's, it's nice to be nice to be here. You're an expert at it. You're a movie, you know, buff, you're a cinephile, but you also, like I put it on Twitter this morning or X, I'm still calling it Twitter, you know, <laughs> sorry. It is uh, Twitter, but um, you are easily my most like studious guest. You do the most research. You take it upon yourself to like, you know, the the people in the cast then you go back and learn about them and then you watch more movies or we are talking about Elmore Leonard today who we both love and we kind of decided to focus on westerns we'll get into that and you watch just a ton of Elmore Leonard movies that weren't even westerns or stuff that was tangentially linked and I love that about you Jed I think you're really you take it to heart and you want to do a good job and you always deliver so it's great well, thanks. I think I said I don't do anything else. So <laughs> thanks for <laughs> giving me. Uh, I, I think I, I, I you, you sounded a little apologetic when I talked about some of the movies I was watching for, and I, you know, I said I'd be watching this many movies anyway. You, you, you know, yeah, being I on the show gives me a reason to focus or something. So. Like you don't have to watch that many, or you know, and you're like, this is what I do. Yeah. This is what I do. Yeah. Yes. No, thanks. Uh, thanks for giving me uh, the reason to focus. Now, I will say this was a fairly short notice thing. Yes. So uh, I did not get to get into uh, get into it the way I would, you know, would have. Not that I, I don't feel bad about this. I'm just saying oh. that that nice intro you gave me, I. I'd, I'd like to have explored further because um, yeah, these, these movies are full of great, great casts and great uh, um, interesting filmmakers and, and writers and things like that um, yeah. to, to further no. explore. And I didn't go, didn't go as deep as I, I'd like to, but um, yeah. yeah, what a fun topic. Uh, yes. I should, I should say, I sent you a message this morning asking if you'd ever written Elmore Leonard, a fan letter. And the and reason why, 
Okay. Is because I was listening to an interview with him from the late nineties. And, um, he, you know, the interviewer asked him, um, you know, who's your audience? Who, who do you, uh, write for, you know, who reads you? And he was talking about all the different types of people that read him. He was getting into the minutia of criminals mm -hmm. that read him saying that, uh, you know, he's, uh, he gets letters from uh, people in, in prison who are, you know, voracious readers and, and who break down who else is reading him. And he said, you know, I seem to be big with the heroin uh, guys, but, you know, they they tell me that I haven't haven't got through to the, the crack and cocaine um, guys <laughs> yet. That uh, That's where I'm building. But then he, he starts talking about this fan letter he got from a young uh, teenage girl. Uh, oh. who was reading him and I kind of did a double take looking at the time period and I thought I could that have been could that have been Jen uh if I had up? his address I would have <laughs> uh because I think did I tell you the story that I had a creative writing teacher yell at me for reading Elmore Leonard in high school yes I well I heard it on your your great episode with Nikki Dolson, um, yeah, which I listened yeah. to, uh, the other day. So, um, yeah, that's, I'm sure was in my mind when I thought, Oh yes. my God, could yeah. that have been Jen in high school? She, you know, and I was reading classic books at the same time, but every weekend I would bring home a different Elmore Leonard book from our library. I loved devouring them over the weekend and, uh, yeah, she just thought I was reading a bunch of good old boy trash and wasting my time. And it's like, lady, this is the stuff, man. He is, you know, the king of dialogue. And she loved Dickens my dialogue. Of Detroit. Yeah, I know. When I was reading uh, about him this morning, there was a quote I hadn't heard before that one of his favorites, uh, what a description of him was the poet laureate of wild assholes with revolvers with guns Whoa, yes. with revolvers yeah yeah That's a great new one. musical express from britain i thought that was such a good way of putting it but yes do you remember what your first elmer leonard book or the one that kind of hooked you was well so my first introduction to him would have been um get shorty the movie yes same um so i saw that mm -hmm. and uh loved it and it, so I was also a reader as a kid, um, but school absolutely killed it for me. I quit reading in middle school. I quit reading altogether because oh, wow. it was heartbreak. I was not as, it sounds like you were a much faster reader than I was. Oh. Um, it took me a while to, like, I was always reading, but it took me a while to get through something most of the time. And I had to put down more books that I wanted to read, to read stuff i had to for school it. and it yeah. just made me resentful of all the classics I was reading. I was like, I, I didn't, frankly, I didn't get most of them. Uh, they were a chore for me. And, you know, I, at the time I was really into like sci-fi fantasy stuff. I was reading these like gigantic books. And there was one time I had to pick up the same book and start it all over three or four times because I kept having to put it down to read an assignment and, you know, losing losing my place. And I, I finally got frustrated. And I, I just, I, I swore off reading. I, mm. I said, I'm not going to read anymore, which meant I wasn't going to read what they assigned me in school, but I wasn't going to read anything else either. So um, it wasn't until I got out of school uh, that I said, okay, I guess I could read again. Yeah, and I started reading um, 
but that would have been uh, a couple of years. Well, ninety five is when the movie came out. I I, grad, I was out of school by then. I was starting to read again. It took a little while for me to get my you know kind of muscles built up, my reading muscles, and and I uh, um, it it wasn't a couple of years later. I got a job at a bookstore, and I I was able to uh, have access to books and just check them out, kind of like a library, hardcover books, and so I was able for the first time to read like contemporary fiction and, and I, and, and nonfiction too, but I, you know, I kind of tried a little bit of everything, but I kept coming back to the crime stuff. And because of, uh, get shorty, Elmore Leonard was in my mind. And I, um, I think the first book of his that came out in hardcover after I got the job was out of sight. And so Mm -hmm. I, I think out of sight was probably the first one I read. And, um, and, and then right after that, I think I've read Writing the Rap and Pronto, you know, the Raylan Givens uh, books. And, um, uh, you know, and then I just started picking up whatever I could find. And um, I, I also went through phases where I would read too many books by the same author in Me quick too. succession. Yeah. And I would get I would get tired of them. And so very deliberately with Elmore Leonard and with a couple other authors, um, I, I quit reading whatever I could. I, I kept collecting them, but now I've still got a backlog that I can, you know, like once a year or something yeah. like that, I can go pick up something and I've got a new, you know, Jim Thompson or Elmore Leonard or, or something like that to read. So I, mm-hmm. I have, I've still only read maybe half of his output. Uh, so, you know, I've got, I got quite a ways to go and I really hadn't read many of the Westerns. Um, uh, so it, uh, it was it was exciting to to focus on those because um, yeah they were they were pretty much new territory for me other than having seen some of the movies most of the movies but uh, it was fun to to watch all of them together and see man he you could say he goes back to the well again and again with uh, th- or you could yeah. say no he's got themes you know mm-hmm. that he you know these are meaningful to him. For some reason, um, and uh, I, I will say I was struck watching all these and reading uh, some of his stories and, and books in the last week or two. Um, how he's got this this kind of archetype um, that's a man or a woman. He writes women characters too, who are like this, who have who are very good at th- something, and they're yes. very they're good at something. And they long for, you know, independence. I mean, kind of like a Michael Mann character, you could say. Except yeah, they're like professionalism. Yeah. Yeah. But professionalism is, is less their thing, maybe, than just uh, I'm good at this. This is how I can make my way in the world. And this is how I can gain independence. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, thinking about him and listening to his, his interviews and, and reading uh, some of his uh, writing about himself, I come to realize, well, that he's pretty much describing himself the way he talks about writing. He's clearly a very good writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's also, he's good at it and he enjoys it. There's some artistic satisfaction he gets from, but he wants to make a living, right? He is. Oh yeah. He's very, you know, he talks about why, 
he switched from writing westerns to writing crime was because the market dried up and yep. so i'm going to write something else and um you know he when he talks about writing books he said i'm always writing for the screen i'm always mm-hmm. wanting this to be a movie uh or a tv show and that's because it's it's financial you know i want to make yeah. a living and that's where the money is and you know it, and it's not cynical it's it's just kind of pragmatic the same way his characters are and he said you know selling options is what made him independent you know yes. he could uh he could then write and so you know he he was one of his own characters i think uh just doing this thing he's good at using it as uh his way to be independent his way to be um self-reliant and he and he said he hated you know, he he thought for a while maybe he'd he'd write for TV, and he talked about what a miserable experience it was writing for studios, writing for you know being somebody's yeah having for to somebody have bosses or writing by committee. That is not Elmore Leonard, you know. That is right. He said yeah. the whole reason to write was not to have a boss, you know, and yeah. so finding that well, if he wrote books that people wanted to read and wanted to buy for film that uh well he could be his own boss and he you know so he he wrote the books and let you know sold them um and yeah. uh, was self-sustaining so yeah it kind of came into focus a little more uh in the last couple of weeks thinking about him as one of his own characters like well that's you know that you kind of roll your eyes sometimes thinking god how many of these you know people are there that you can write this same kind of thing it was like well it's it's clearly very personal to him. It is, it is him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I appreciated that. What about very you? Much. What was your first, uh, introduction to Elmore Leonard? Why did you latch on? Yeah, I, I think it was good shorty going to the movie and then immediately wanting to read the book, just loving the way that all of the characters were kind of coming at the same thing, or there were, um, accidental, you know, overlaps and, Everybody was very independent and kind of crossing paths in these uh, crazy ways. It kind of reminded me of like, you know, something that you would see maybe in an Altman or one of the more highbrow movies, but mm-hmm. it's done in a in a style that's far more accessible and you know um, a little quicker. And this was the era of uh, Quentin Tarantino, of course, and so it was a real fascination. Like, oh, he learned a lot from this guy so it'd be interesting to read his books i think good shorty was the first one and then i just started going through all of them i do remember when out of sight came out i think i got it from the library i started to get on all the lists for the new ones um i remember especially loving freaky deaky you didn't mention Mm. that one have you read that one you know i don't think it's one that i've read i do i i think it's one that i started because i i feel like i could uh if you talked about the beginning i could probably say oh yeah that scene but i don't think i finished it it's not because i wasn't enjoying it but uh, something else uh dragged me away i had to go so i've got freaky d i I don't think i've read that one 
That one has been adapted. But okay. Freaky Deaky was adapted. I think it was called Freaky Deaky. I think Christian Slater was maybe the star of that yeah, one. He's... And I, I did see the movie. Uh, <laughs> I don't okay. think it was very good. It wasn't. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Like over 25 of them have been adapted. And uh, as Judd and I were talking when we were sort of planning this, not a lot of these uh, were winners. But one of the reasons why his books, uh, you know, touch us is because, especially as film fans, is he was always writing for the movies. Like this was the type of storytelling he gravitated to for financial reasons, but and also I think out of interest. And I think that translates very well to the page. Uh, Freaky Deaky one was one I mentioned too because I know that was one of his favorites of mm. his books and also Tishomingo Blues which I didn't love as much yeah. as he did um, I thought it was good but I know that that one was very personal to him as well um, I can't remember what uh, the third one was he in an interview was talking about some of his favorites but yeah I always liked um, Freaky Deaky I think unfortunately some of them uh, you know when you watch the movies, then you you didn't really want to go back and reread the book because you did have a bad aftertaste or you read too many in a row and suddenly you started to see the, the tricks and some of the overlap and what he is doing. Um, as far as Western stories, I loved his Western stories. I read like some, I think when I was younger and then I hadn't read a bunch. Um, I have the book that I bought, I think for the Nikki Dolson episode. And I was going to go back and read, um, the Western stories again and the ones I missed and didn't get around to it. I need to do that because, um, I'm a huge Western fan. So I was excited when Jed and I were trying to come up with this idea and it was short notice because um october got really busy and i had a lot of people who needed to reschedule and luckily jed was available and so when we were trying to like brainstorm uh elmore leonard was a suggestion of jed's and as we were trying to think what do we do you mentioned westerns and i'm like yeah, let's do that because i really haven't seen too many people focus on the genre that kind of launched him, which was the Western. So I was excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting uh, listening to him uh, talk about, uh, I think it was on the, uh, the criterion extras interview on 310 to Yuma, uh, him talking about when he started writing um, Westerns, how he was thinking he would be on TV, but then he was thinking, he didn't like any of the Western TV shows. And that kind of surprised me. Uh, he wanted the yeah. movies, but yeah, he was like, no, really didn't, didn't like any of them. <laughs> I, you know, I, could he have, uh, did he watch all of them? I doubt it. But mm -hmm. uh, you know, whatever the popular sampling uh, that, that he had, he didn't care for them. And, and uh, you know, one of the things he talked about was how they always ended you know, they always ended the same way with a, a, a showdown, you know, a mano a mano in the street uh, mm -hmm. gunfight. And then he said, you know, it just wasn't wasn't the way things things were, you know, it wasn't realistic or something like that. And so I don't know if that was his main gripe, but uh, it was a little interesting to me that um, he would make his living writing Westerns and mm -hmm. hoping to, you know, be adapted and, and, and end up on the screen. But uh was not a fan of of 
the the TV shows, I should say. You know, I'm, you yeah. didn't talk about the movies, but yeah, wasn't wasn't a fan of the TV shows. That was in. Uh, I think that was part of that independent streak and his idea of liking outsiders or underdogs, or um, you saw that a lot in his Western stories. Um, sometimes they were about minorities or the people that you wouldn't expect would be telling the stories like long before there were revisionist Western, uh, which kind of became trendy in the late sixties and seventies. Um, Elmore Leonard, some of his stories were kind of using the, those same characteristics and some of those um, things that we would see later with him uh, were appearing. And I think maybe part of that, too, comes from his background. I read, you know, in World War II era, he tried to join the Marines. He had weak eyesight. And so then he became um, a Navy man. And I love that because my grandpa was in the Navy in World War II. And that's where he got the nickname of Dutch. And so he had this sort of can-do spirit. Well, if you're going to say I can't do this, I'm going to attack it in a different direction. Like, I'm going to still go, but I'm going to figure it out. And I think that was maybe his way with the the Western, too, was I don't like what they're doing with, you know, A, B, and C. So I'm going to go ZYX instead. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting too that he uh, you mentioned World War II and, and I can't think of World War II factoring into. I mean, again, admittedly, I've not read. You know, mm-hmm. I've read maybe half of his books. Maybe, yeah. I can't think of World War II factoring into. I can think of historical. I can think of the Spanish American War. Yes. I can think of you know, but he didn't he's fall always back kind of, on that. No, he didn't go to World War II. He didn't go to the Civil War or the like. He, he was always going for those, those little like uh, skirmishes. Yeah. Yeah. And cat chaser was about, uh, you know, Central America, uh, yeah. you uh, army intervention. Yeah. It, it was, it was, it was a soldier character, but it's never a soldier from the war. Everybody else writes about, no. you know, yeah. it's kind of interesting that, uh, that, that streak of uh, not contrarian, but sort of like, well, everybody else is writing. Yeah, I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to yep. do the other, you know, and uh, I thought that's that's pretty cool. It is cool. Yeah, it's like uh, Chili Palmer and Get Shorty who decides, you know, he's done uh, being a Shylock. And so he's going to, you know, do movies and you just kind of get in through a different avenue, which which is very Elmore Leonard for sure. Well, we should probably talk about, you know, the one that really launched him as far as um, Western fame uh, was 310 to Yuma, the Delmer Daves movie from 1957. I love both adaptations. I talked about them with Nikki Dolson in a Westerns episode a couple years ago. Um, she was far more of a fan of the 1957 version. I love them both for different reasons. And, uh, but, you know, this was a cool one to kind of focus on the 1957, um, which is such a good movie. And just my goodness, what a performance out of Glenn Ford, uh, amazing performance. So, uh, were you always a fan of this movie? Uh, you know, I, only saw this movie for the first time probably in the last five years or so. Okay. Um, I saw the uh, the James Bangle uh, film theatrically, yeah. um, but I'd never seen uh, never seen the the original. And I got to say, it was a revelation when I did see it. You know that that 
beautiful cinematography. Yes. um, You know, and how gorgeous uh, it was. Um, You know, I don't know if I, if I'd seen it younger, you know, when maybe there wasn't as great a copy available, uh, perhaps it wouldn't have, uh, you know, meant, meant as much, but yeah, absolutely. This, you know, restored, uh, version is, is so gorgeous, uh, to look at and, and so evocative, so moody, you know, all the black and white photography and the, um, you know, you gotta, the song, the 310 to Yuma ballad that's, that's in there. It's, it's kind of, it's, if they played it in the James Mangold film, it had taken you out of the movie, right? It's, it's so (laughs) stuck. It's, it, yeah, that's true. Separated from the film. It's very, it's corny. And it's of its time in a way that's, you know, maybe not complimentary. Um, but in the film, it yeah. absolutely works. And it's it's very evocative of, um, it, you know, just like watching a, a great film noir from uh, the same period. The ones that are really uh, so spellbinding, um, this, this one uh, does the same thing, which I would say is not something that I find a lot in the, in the Westerns, you know, I love film noir, you know, crime stuff is my, my favorite, but um, uh, the Westerns of course are, are often crime stories, but um, that kind of, you, you know, when I, when I think of what draws me to the film noir as of the time was the, uh, the, the almost claustrophobic sort of feeling of, of, uh, the photography and, and, and the, the sets, which are, you know, often done just, they're very small and very, uh, yeah. Induced claustrophobia, maybe that way. And that that's often for a budgetary reason. And this is yet, you know, so expansive. So, uh, yeah. all the sweeping landscapes and things like that, but it's still able to evoke that, that same sort of, uh, you know, you don't want to talk. You want to, mm-hmm. it, it's often very quiet. And yeah, you don't miss every, very you know you don't want to yes. break that spell. It's very, uh, very lush and and atmospheric and uh, yeah. It's it, so yeah. It was it was hypnotic and yes. Glenn Ford for some reason Glenn Ford is always a revelation to me. I always dismiss him as soon as I'm done, kind of being amazed by uh, whatever the last thing I'd watched him in. Well, you know I forget. And it's like Glenn Big Ford. Heat. I never yeah. Yeah, I never, uh, he's for some reason, somebody that I always underestimate until I see him again. And mm-hmm. I go, God, that guy's fantastic. Uh, you know, he never comes to mind. voice, too. He has like the perfect yeah. voice. Yep. Yeah. He, he never comes to mind uh, when I think about, you know, my favorite performers of no, my God. I eras. agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And man, did that guy have a life. I don't know if he spent any time on his Wikipedia page, but uh, all I'm going to say for those listening, like do a deep dive, look at Glenn Ford's Wikipedia page and just jump down to his personal life. And uh, this is somebody who, uh, yeah, yeah, um, you know, was (laughs) like eavesdropping. He was counting every woman he was with, hundreds of actresses. I mean, the guy was like, Uh, a legend in that department and he was you know also putting taps on phone calls and you know does my wife know that i'm having affairs i mean glenn ford 
I'm amazed that there hasn't been like an autofocus type movie about Glenn Ford yet. And so I'm giving away an idea on the podcast and it's like, God damn, I want to write that. But anyway, I want to work on the Glenn Ford story is what I'm saying, because it's just fascinating. But 1957 was a big year for Elmore Leonard. I'll get off my Glenn Ford kinky um, fascination. <laughs> like that's, that whole... that's what we tune in for, Jen. That is what we tune yeah, in for. Jen being fascinated by weirdos. But um, anyway, so because I guess it's just you wouldn't expect it. You see this guy and you're like, yeah, he has a great voice and, he, you know, he's handsome. But you're like really like what is going on with this dude but um it was a whole vibe i guess glenn ford but uh 1957 elmer leonard big western year the tall t which was based on his short story the captives had come out um actually in april so that was the first one uh released this year bud butterker's film i did a whole episode on the renowned westerns with chris mckay that was released um a couple months ago and that was a lot of fun and then in august we had more of the well i think these were both kind of b westerns sort of but this one was more high profile this was in august and yeah it's a classic you have um, just a knockout performance by Glenn Ford. But you also have Van Heflin, who is somebody that I might have underrated. He was Van Heflin <laughs> is one of those guys who just it falls right out of your head as well. And, you know, I think uh, he's very good. He's very conflicted and he plays kind of more of an everyman. I also was really interested in what they did with the wife character in this movie um, compared to uh, the Gretchen Maul part in the James Mangold, you know, you didn't really say what were your thoughts on the 2007 remake? Oh, I liked it. Um, You know, going back and reading the short story, the captives uh, you come to realize just how much screenwriter Halstead Walls brought to the project because the captives is very, very. Oh, the captives. Oh, I'm sorry, is the for captives. The, I'm sorry, yeah. that's Talti. Uh, but yeah. reading the three ten the, the Yuma story. Thing. Yeah. Um, with, well, with both with both films, it was uh, who Burt Kennedy wrote uh, the Talti. With both, uh, no, I take that back. Specifically with three ten to Yuma with Halstead Wells, you realize how much he took that the kind of kernel of an idea that uh, you know is very compelling, and the the film wouldn't wouldn't exist yeah. without it. But he really fleshed it out for uh, the screen in ways that, um, yeah, because it's the bedroom work. scene on basically, yeah. like when they're you know in the town and kind of like the last chunk of the movie, essentially. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and he he really brought a lot to it, and they used you know his script, his 1957 script uh, to to build out and they build out further in the 2007. And I I enjoyed the 2007. Um, I do think it gets into some different themes that aren't there, but work, uh, work very well, both uh, as, you know, uh, these characters, but also as a, as an Elmore Leonard, Mm -hmm. um, they they kind of make explicit some things that are undercurrents in a lot of Elmore Leonard stuff. Um, The, you know, the, you talked about minorities, um, having minority perspectives in a lot of uh, Elmore Leonard stories. And and I, I do think that some of the stuff in the remake was was very much focused on that, how, 
you know, the, the industrialization going on, yes. um, you the know, Chinese the railroads the, and the, yeah. The, yeah. Whether it's the Chinese, whether it's the, uh, the, the little guys, the ranchers getting, uh, pushed yes. off their land, things like that, which is not in the Elmore Leonard story. No, in the no. Elmore Leonard story, the, uh, the, um, uh, he's not Dan Evans. I can't think. They changed both names <laughs> for the movie 310 to Yuma. Uh, ben Wade and Dan Evans are not the names of the characters in the uh, short story. I cannot remember their names. Oh, that's but, okay. But the, uh, the, the Van Heflin character or the Christian Bale character um, in the, the film version is a – he is a lawman. He's a deputy or, or uh, something. He's not a farmer. Um, he's not one of these guys getting pushed, pushed off his land by, um, you know, mm-hmm. the, the big uh, developers, the big industrial guys who are characters that pop up in all of these Westerns uh, and in, in Elmore Leonard work in general. Uh, they're, they're kind of a, um, uh an archetype that, that he uses a lot. And so I do think that the expansions that they did for the, the 2007 work very well, uh, thematically, the ending is, I still don't understand. I don't, I don't know what to do with it. Um, it, it, I think if the ending were, were different, the, the movie itself would, would be a, a, a different, um, I, I enjoy the movie. I like the movie, but it's not a classic to me. Um, okay. And I the think the ending one, has the a ending? lot to do with, yeah, the 2007, oh, uh, okay. it d- didn't, the ending there where, uh, the decisions made by the, um, the Ben Wade character don't, um, uh, I don't, <laughs> it took me out of the film every time oh, I watch wow. it. I'm like, wait, what the hell, what the hell here? Um, uh, Mangold yeah, loves I, exploring father issues. I've noticed that uh, in all of his movies. I mean, even, you know, um, the one he made with Hugh Jackman, Wolverine, uh, he mm. loves his daddy issues and stuff. So I, I think, you know, I'm always fascinated by those in movies. It really works for me, but I also love the ending of this movie, the 1957 mm-hmm. one. Uh, one difference that I do really adore in the 2007 is, of course, I think that movie is stolen by Ben Foster, who's amazing as Charlie Prince. There's Charlie Prince. Yeah. In the 1957 Second in Command, who's in the 07 version, there's a homoerotic subtext. He's clearly, clearly in love with the Wade character. And, um, you know, it's just amazing the way that uh, Foster plays it. And, you know, I love that. You do have Charlie Prince in this, but, you know, that isn't really happening. I do love some of the stuff that is... Uh, in both versions, like, you know, the seduction of the barmaid, that kind of thing that we see in town and, you know, just his charm. Um, And also the way that the interaction plays out on um, the Dan Evans um, farm or the homestead with the family. And he gets to see what, what that's like. I think that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Um, Richard Jekyll played Charlie Prince in the, in the 1957 version. And if you go to letterboxd, the, the still that they have for the whole movie is 
Richard Jekyll looking over uh, Glenn Ford's shoulder in a uh-huh. in the, in the smoke in the air. And it, I mean, it looks like if you told me this was a still from like, uh, you know, Kenneth Anger um, <laughs> <laughs> film, uh, you know, I, so kind I of would, one of those things you might not notice on your first watch, but if you're looking, yeah, for and it, I'm not there. sure if the, uh, you know, it, I, I'd have to watch the film again, thinking about now that. I, you know, I don't really, it. but, yeah. uh, you know, I, I do think it's, it's in that still for sure. If you're thinking about it also, Charlie Prince is a name like that character yes. is in the 310 to Yuma short story and he gets his, like, they didn't change the name. That was a good name. I no, guess. Uh, they, great name. So Charlie Prince, uh, Charlie Prince survives in name, uh, to both, uh, both films. The An scene that you character. talked about, the barmaid yeah. scene, which is great is, uh, again, uh, Halstead Wells. It is yes. not in the short story, no, um, not at but all. It, it does work. It unpacks, uh, you know, certainly, you know, both Glenn Ford and um, Russell Crowe are, are clearly very, very charming and uh, seductive, uh, smooth characters um, that I do think that scene is very important to both films and, and yes. to the character. And, and uh, yeah, I, I should I, tell that story real quick. It's on the Nikki episode, but if you're not like ju- jumping back, I did show the movie um, when I hosted and programmed films over at the Scottsdale Public Library. And we had a mostly senior citizen audience. And this was the 2007 version. And so there's that scene where Russell Crowe is just looking at this woman like so intently. And it's very hot. And this poor woman was so like caught up in the way he was just like devouring this woman with her eyes that she forgot to breathe, just started coughing and like had to get up and walk out of the theater coughing the whole way. And I was like worried because these are older people. And so I like scurried after to make sure she was okay. And she's just like that man. And uh, (laughs) yeah, it's brilliant. So yes, that it's, it's, it's an intense scene in the, in the original too. You just see that it's maybe less, well, it's a little bit sexual. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's, there's implications there, but you know, Russell Crowe definitely knows how to, to play that up for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think she makes, uh, the, the barmaid, um, I forget He's the fabulous, actress's name. Uh, in this. she, she definitely makes, makes a, a Felicia Farr, who is great. Yeah. So the yes. the connection that she and uh, Glenn Ford have, yeah, is very believable. Yep. Uh, the you know he talks to her about you know uh, her life um, as a you know working in bars on the range, mm-hmm. which is not a an easy life. No. But they you know they recognize something in each other. Yep. Uh, and 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 you totally believe it again coming back to michael mann it's a very michael mann sort of romance right these people who are independent they and and they recognize each other and they have a very quick yep very quick get to i mean god you know this is uh this is um Oh, what's the characters? Jack Foley and Karen Sisko in the trunk of the car, right? Yep. Having uh, in very out of sight. <laughs> and they're talking about Faye Dunaway and Robert Redford and Three Days of the Condor and how 
they got together so quick in that movie and, and um yeah what they're talking about so, is happening yeah it makes yeah. It, it it's it's one of these things that that does come up but again not in the short story but it's important that the Glenn Ford character have a reason to still be in town when the posse comes back and she's a yes. very very compelling and believable reason for him to still be there when they walk out of the room, you know, when she says, I always take a nap mm-hmm. and then, uh, you know, and then they walk out together yep. after their nap. Uh, yeah. you, you absolutely believe he would, yep. he's gonna, he's gonna stick around uh, for her. And, yeah. um, yeah. So, you know, great screenwriting, uh, adapting from, you know, Halstead Wells uh, to again not to diminish Leonard's contribution because we keep talking about things that that are in the movie that aren't in the story. The story is very economical, very short, um, but it, it's such a densely, tightly packed uh, kernel that um, you know you, you could probably extrapolate some other really good uh, whys to this scenario these people are in but uh yeah very very sturdy uh and 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 artistic you know poetic uh extrapolations there by by the screenwriter yes absolutely where do you want to go from here jed uh well we could jump straight over the tall t if you want since we're still in 1957 okay yeah the tall t is one that I really enjoy, uh, you're talking about The Captives, short story by Elmore Leonard that was adapted by Burt Kennedy. Burt Kennedy adapted a ton of uh, stuff for, or didn't adapt, but he was the, the main screenwriter of Bud Boudicca in these renowned Westerns. You've got Randall Scott. Richard Boone is fabulous, and he is kind of the quintessential uh, Elmore Leonard character here. Um, and you have Marino Sullivan, you know, I'm going to let you dive in on this because I'm sure listeners have heard me recently kind of uh, wax, uh, philosophic about this. Episode. Yeah. Well, I did enjoy that, that episode that, uh, renowned uh, Westerns with you and Chris McKay. That was, uh, that was, that was good. Um, so again, we, we talked about maybe avoiding talking about this one, but you yeah. can't talk. Elmore Leonard Westerns and not, not no. bring the tall T into it. Um, I, uh, I, as opposed to 310 to Yuma, which was, you know, such a densely packed little kernel of an idea that, that was, that was really fleshed out. Tall T, the short story, the captives is, it's a longer short story. It's yes. a, you know, it's maybe two or three times as long as uh, the um, 310 to Yuma but it's pretty much a straight, a straight adaptation. And the tall T is only, you know, it's, it's less than 80 minutes long. Um, so, yeah. you know, it, it is economic and, you know, just goes in, tells the story. Um, I do think, uh, I, I think it was maybe on your episode um, that I, I, I listened to a few, a few different things, but uh, it might've been in your episode that, you know, the, attention was brought to the practical locations um, mm-hmm. that, you know, something that really sets the tall T and the, the other uh, Bedecker, uh Westerns yeah. apart from a lot of the other B Westerns of the time. Um, 
we're uh, these fabulous, fabulous practical California. locations that yeah. they're shooting in. Yeah, mm -hmm. they're you know you do have the sweeping uh, vistas and that opening shot of Randall Scott, you know, coming down the mountain on the horse right mm -hmm. up into into camera. You know, it's I mean the guy had to be able to ride these and and the stunt the stunt players in in three ten yeah. and uh, in this one. You know, these were clearly you know, professional horse riders, uh, uh, and, and Randolph Scott, you know, uh, an actor who, who'd spent plenty of time, uh, on horseback. He's very comfortable mm -hmm. on horseback, but I mean, that terrain that he's riding over is, is tricky looking, but, uh, um, yeah, what a shot coming into, uh, down that, that rocky, uh, slope, uh, Richard Boone, I thought was interesting, uh, was related to Daniel Boone. He, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like a great, 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 you know, grand nephew. His, his great, great, great grandfather was, uh, brothers with Daniel Boone. So, um, I thought that was, that was kind Very of interesting. Cool. Yeah. But yeah, one of the, one of the few performers to show up in more than one of these, uh, Elmore Leonard Westerns. He's also in Ombre. Um, but uh, yeah, all playing the heavy both times. Um, and such a rough looking guy, especially oh in gosh. Ombre, yeah. which is, you know, years later. Um, so rough looking, apparently a very uh, sophisticated um, gentleman, you know, mm -hmm. uh, classically educated and um Kind of like you Randolph know, Scott loved, you know, uh, talking about stocks and reading the Wall Street mm -hmm. Journal and stuff. And yeah, not what you would expect. Not, no, not, not. He's, he's clearly, uh, you know, he's got the face for it, but, uh, but he, he's believable as this really mm -hmm. bad, bad guy who's, um, you know, comparable, especially to the Ben Wade played by, um, uh, Russell Crowe, who talks about, uh, you know, you gotta be a bad man to keep these, this gang in check, you know, but, but the Richard Boone character talking about how much he's just sick of his, he's sick of his, uh, sick his as a crew. companions. Yeah. Henry yeah. Silva and, and Skip Homier who are, you know, he just, they're these young guys, they're horny. All they talk about is, you know, yeah, that's women an, that they want A couple of the Burt Kennedys, <laughs> like where there's like, you know, that old joke that Jerry Seinfeld said about how your coworkers are just people who happen to fill out the same job applications as you. It's not like you need to be <laughs> best friends. Like they just happen to work together, but it's like, I'm sick of these dudes, man. I want to be Randall Scott's like, just cause we're on opposite sides. Can't we be buddies? I love it. Right. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, and, and he is a bad guy. I mean, yes. the, the things he's willing to do the, I mean, my pretty gosh. pretty brutal pretty fucking dark right like at the beginning you know we have a, a sweet old man and a kid and like they're dead i mean yeah they not just dead they're like horrible rotten in the bottom of a well you yes. know they're poisoning the, the water yeah uh, with their decomposing bodies <laughs> everybody's poisoning the water hole isn't that from toy story something like that yeah i mean yeah. i i'm trying to think you know that that scene um 
didn't have to be in there. You could just say, no, not at all. There, like, there are, uh, you brutal. know, the bodies are in the well, but no, we start the movie off with these, these characters and they're, they're lovable. Yeah. And then the next thing, it's you a know, little like leave it to beaver and gee, mister, I would love some right. cherry candy and stuff. And, and then he brings the candy and oh my God. Yeah. 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 Devastating. It's, uh, it's, it's brutal. Also, uh, the, I'm trying to think which which character it is pretty early on gets shot right in the face and there's yes. a bloody explosion out of his face in 1957 in color I know. really pops I, and the editing yeah. is so quick the impact is really great so yeah the Talty's a pretty I think kinda, McKay you know, said a couple of these piece movies of had to do had the scenes where people were getting shot in the face, essentially, which they are. reminds sure us was of yeah of our paying attention friend, to that. Yeah, of Sean Cosby who makes that joke all the time. Like <laughs> you know, my books are full of people getting shot in the face. I mean, yeah. Well, that's so. There's another thing that Elmore Leonard talks about. You know, we talk about he doesn't write about veterans of World War II or the Civil War. He writes about, you know, these other mm-hmm. skirmishes, these other wars, these forgotten. Um, yeah. So, well, he also talks about in the TV shows that he disliked everybody, and in the movies, he said everybody gets shot in the shoulder. Um, and I never once shot anyone in the shoulder. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I wanted to avoid that. Because getting shot in the shoulder and shrugging it off is bullshit. I always shoot people uh, elsewhere, you know, in very yeah, inconvenient places. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, a lot of people getting shot in the face in these, but uh, or, or or getting shot in ways that they're not going to uh, shrug off uh, shrug off in the next ten minutes of screen yeah. time. Exactly. No shoulder shots. That's what we're talking about. But yeah, the tall T is great. Uh, the, the thing that also was kind of cracking up, I remember Chris and I was the line about like, how many times do they make a comment about Marino Sullivan's character essentially being like plain as an adobe wall or she's plain, <laughs> she's an attractive woman. Like, what is your fucking problem, guys? Like, yeah, she is. And I think that, you know, that comes directly out of the short story. That that her character is a spinster at twenty nine, yeah. um, unmarried. Her father is, a, you know, very wealthy, and she is on yes. her honeymoon, having married a younger man. Who I don't think he's younger in the in the movie. He's no. comparable age, but he's younger, and it's clear mm-hmm. he's marrying money. Yes, and he's marrying her father's money, and mm-hmm. but and and she's aware of it. But yeah. she's she's she doesn't like having her face rubbed in it. Uh, no. But she's a she's aware of it, and she understands this is my chance to not be a spinster. Um, and so she, just like you know, he has the quite the, a good speech about it. Actually, like yeah. a very matter of fact, like you know, this is what I did. I was tired of being um, looked at like this, and. Yeah, or treated yeah. like her father wanted a son, and yeah. So yeah, if for the mechanics of the and the psychology of the you know the short story anyway, yeah, she's referred to as it's clear 
she's not sought after for her great beauty and and things like that. But yes, on screen, she's a she's yes. a very attractive uh, mm-hmm. person. There's a little bit of uh, you know um, uh, you put on your Hollywood goggles and and yeah, yeah. okay, whoa, she's not so beautiful. Yeah, but, like um, Joan Fontaine playing Jane Eyre, and you're like, okay, honey, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So that it makes sense that way. Um, uh, I did not look into Henry Silva, but this had to have been one of the earliest uh, screen appearances of his. And he, um, you know, not not an Asian actor, I uh, don't believe, but he uh, played Asian characters. And it's mm-hmm. never specifically uh, said that he is uh, an Asian character in this, in in the Tall T, but he he has a you know a, a, uh, a racist uh, nickname, which is yes. what he's he's yes. known by, and it's um you know, and you don't know you know. I suppose he could be you know Italian or, uh, or darker complected. Uh, but not not Asian and, and everybody teases him with this nickname yeah. or he could be. Yeah. I mean, of course, in um, I think the first thing I saw him in was uh, Manchurian Candidate. And of course, he's sure. very clearly playing uh, Chinese character in that in that film. So, yeah, it, it um, so that might be. Yeah. I didn't look into could, that either too much. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it it's just one of many examples in these films of uh um, uh, minority characters uh, being played by Anglos, or um, uh, in 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 ways they pra, pra you know maybe I'm maybe I'm giving too much credit to us today that they wouldn't be uh, cast that way today. But um, yeah, so a yeah. pretty good string of um, that you know, joke uh, in Get Shorty about Charlton Heston playing a Mexican right. in Touch of Evil. Yes, same thing. Yeah, Charlton yeah. Heston as a Mexican in Touch of Evil, uh, as opposed to Henry Silva as an Asian or, or uh, uh, Martin Balsam or John Saxon. Yeah, or, uh, playing uh, Latin American characters. Yeah, right. So uh, yeah, it, it's it it's it's worth noting that uh, that that's that's in here but um but it, it does not take away from henry silva being you know quite a screen presence you understand why very uh, yeah why he goes on to he's you know kind of the charlie charlie prince of this of this uh he's the hot hot shot young young gun um uh and he's you know he's got that kind of cool hairdo and and uh the the costumes here play pretty well in the color you know i mm-hmm. uh this one's in color um the delmer daves 310 to yuma's in in you know black really stunning black and white uh so you know it, i'm i'm not sure what what the decisions were really whether this was always going to be in color or not but you know some some colors shot uh you know for black and white because they look one way in black and white you know look mm-hmm. incongruous maybe in in color and it's it's interesting some of these uh, uh unlikely uh or unconventional colors that you see uh on these uh characters in in these early color westerns um i wonder yeah. if they were supposed oh. to be 
showing up in black and white, but he's got that, that I, I, I don't even know what color to call it, sort of a, a orange or, or pinkish uh, blouse shirt. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and, and scarves. And, you know, I mean, they look, uh, those colors really like do, salmon do color kind of pop. Kind of, yeah. 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 I mean, when you were talking about um, characters being played by people who aren't the background, that's probably a good crossover into our revisionist Western period, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And so chronologically, and we can go back and forth here, but the next one is Ombre, which is uh, Paul Newman, of course, uh, working with Martin Ritt, who he worked with several times, uh, director Martin Ritt. They made HUD, which is their, you know, most famous, best film, of course. I have a soft spot for The Long Hot Summer, which is mm-hmm. uh, terrific. It's one of the sexiest movies ever. It's it's him and Joanne Woodward, and they were clearly falling in love. And, you know, it, it's a great one. So I enjoy that. This is one that I know I had seen, but for whatever reason, uh, could not remember very much so i was very excited that you gave me a reason to revisit it um it also stars uh, frederick march richard boone uh again so it's a good uh like bridge from the tall t so talk to me about ombre ombre is one i saw years ago and i liked it um i like you know it's funny uh, I, I always liked Paul Newman. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what the first thing I saw him in was, but I liked Paul Newman. Um, of course, HUD is is fantastic. I didn't see HUD till till later in the long hot summer till later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it, it's he's right there. He's trying so hard, and of course, personally, maybe he was like this, but he, he's so beautiful. It's so charming, but he loves to play an absolute shit. He loves to be such a bastard. I think that's a lot of beautiful men, I think, almost feel more apologetic about or embarrassed by it. And so, like, you know, Mm. Jude Law is especially good when he was playing a sleazy dude. Or I I think that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, he's really... Really kind of trying hard. Uh, and so yeah. Ombre fits right into that period. Now, he's not, you know, I mean, king king shit is is HUD, right? Like, yeah, he, yeah. I don't God. think he ever gets worse than that. But, uh, but Ombre kind of plays with that some. Like, yes. he is in there. He's a, he's, um, a, a white, a white kid who was uh, raised by Apaches and mm-hmm. lives among Apaches. Uh, the story in the story, he has um, a relative who dies and leaves him his business, which he owns. Yes. A, he owns a home uh, that's run by uh, Diane Salento um, as a, a boarding house, and and um, and so he now owns this and martin balsam who is uh playing a mexican character in this is his friend and martin balsam talks there's this great speech where he talks to him about you know 
you're uh, there's whites, there's Apaches, and there's Mexicans, and you can kind of be all three. And right now, you have the opportunity to be a white man. Uh, mm-hmm. You now own property and a business. You should do this, you know. And at the time, uh, at the beginning of the film, Paul Newman's got his hair long and you know dresses as an Apache uh, and and you know is living among the Apache and uh, is not well regarded by uh, the white folks around. Um, but, uh, and, and it's clear, you know, there's this great scene where he, uh, he kind of thrashes uh, some, some white guys who are uh, mistreating some Apaches in a bar at the beginning of the film. So it's clear that that's where his heart is with the Apache people. That's where his, his main identity is. But now that he's got this inheritance, you know, Martin Balsam tells him, here's an opportunity for you to, you know, become independent, have some money, you know, uh, he's not interested. We understand, uh, later in running a business, but he is interested in maybe selling a business and, you know, buying a bunch of horses with it and, you know, being independent the way we talk about these Elmer Larry characters really wanting to be, he's good with horses and he wants to, uh, he's got an offer to, uh, to sell this business uh, for a bunch of horses. And and that's his plan. Uh, but he, you know, he cuts his hair and he dresses like a white man and he goes into town. Uh, the story now is that uh, he's leaving town. He's leaving town with Diane Salento. The, you know, he, he lets her know he's, he's letting her go. Yeah. And, you know, c- cutting her loose. And he, he's, he's, you know, he doesn't do it right away. He has to like, yeah, yeah. It's his first kind of cold bastard moment of yeah. the of the film, and they they give him all these great scenes where he just seems pitiless mm-hmm. and without regard for uh, the other people, and and a, you know it it's more complicated than that. He does have you know he just. You understand later in in the film that he just has such disdain for the white culture because of the way they treat uh, the Indians, um, the Apache that he's he's lived among. That yeah, he does not care for them and Mm -hmm. the troubles that they have, and they have some real troubles in the film. But his total indifference to them and and their plight is confounding to them they you know they think he's very cold and and we understand um we understand some early on but more later as you know why he just does not give a shit about their problems Mm -mm. and um so yeah he's he's not he's not a shit the way hud is (laughs) or the way the character in the long uh, hot summer is but he's playing with that in this film that uh, yeah yeah you know to to why should i care kind of thing yeah 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 and uh yeah so there's a lot of great kind of classic paul newman as a bastard uh (laughs) moments in this film um what was your reaction when watching it again for the first time in a while you know I think, again, I think you really tapped into it with Paul Newman. You know, he's so charming and he's easy. And then you're like, oh, okay, he really likes the abrasive edge of these people. Like, 
I think he really kind of relished the opportunity. There's that thing where like some leading men um, on TV and movies, like, well, I don't want to say that. I don't want to be bad or whatever, like kind mm-hmm. of the inherent actor thing of I want people to like me. Um, you know, Paul Newman didn't really worry about that too much. And um, so he's going for it here. I did not remember like what an ensemble uh, piece this really was. Like, um, I didn't, I guess I remembered more uh, stuff with Paul Newman that must have been in my memory. And I'm wondering if I'm conflating it with a different Western that he did or something, because I thought I remembered more like in the desert. So it must have been a totally different movie. And this is one of those great, like, you know, people uh, traveling movies and thrown together. It's kind of like what we just saw in Tall T with Richard Boone, where it's like, I'm tired of these people and I'm with them. Mm -hmm. And, I'm, you know, you have another group of people thrown together and like uh, we start to, you know, make judgments about some people that maybe we were wrong to make or right to make. And um you know, I think the female characters are especially good, especially, I would say, uh, Diane Salento. Is that, I hope I'm saying her name correctly. She's great in this. She gives it right back to Paul Newman and anyone she's in a scene with. Uh, she's wonderful. And so I think, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed watching it. I, I think this is one of the stronger of the the westerns made post 57. Yes, for mm-hmm. sure. I you absolutely hit the nail on the head. Diane Salento, I think steals this movie. Yes. She yeah. is so fantastic. Your eye just goes uh, right to her every time. Yep. Yeah, and I mean and I mean she's that classic character she's and and she's hobbled and she understands this you know socially by being a woman yeah you know she does not have opportunities or Mm -hmm. you know um but she's so clear-eyed about yeah her predicament and her options yeah and she and and she she addresses them straight on um yeah there's no woe is me it's brassy yes it's not uh it's not yeah, she's she's extremely pragmatic. Yep. You know, you can tell she's she's got feelings. She's oh, wounded. Yeah. She doesn't she doesn't like being re- having no. her marriage proposal rejected. No. Uh, she doesn't like it, but she's pragmatic and yep. she moves on and she understands I'm single. You know, mm-hmm. she's a widow. She was a widow at 19, I think she said. So, I'm single. I'm, you know, I don't have many years left to secure, you know, I thought I had a future secure here. I'm running a business, you know, I'm, I'm partners with a man who owns a business. I run it for him and I make a living and I'm good at it. Uh, and now the new guy is, is letting me go. He's Mm -hmm. cutting me off. And the man that I've been Been sleeping uh, with, yeah, sleeping with you know, for a year or so at least. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, I better find out if he's, you know, if, if we're partners yeah. in his eyes. And nope. when he, he lets her know, no, she doesn't like hearing that. She oh, doesn't, no. you know, I'm sure it, it hurts her feelings, 
but she uh, she's very like I said, pragmatic, clear-eyed about her problem, and you know, okay, well, I need to secure a future, and mm-hmm. I've had my business taken away, and I've had my partner taken away, you know, my yeah. business partner and and my my life partner here taken away. I gotta get out of I I gotta pull up stakes and move yep. on because I've got to nail down something uh, for the rest of my life here, and so that's why she's on the stage out of town, and it's worth uh, noting. Uh, Ombre, the Tall T, and Three Ten to Yuma all do the Bisbee to Contention uh, stage. Yes. So I think they're all the same cinematic universe. If you want to tie these <laughs> together, you know, put out a box go. set with them. This is the Contention to Bisbee uh, line, and Ombre is the end of the line. It's yep. the train is coming. It's put put the the stage out of business. Um, the, the same stage that, you know, was running in the tall T, um, mm-hmm. the same stage that Ben Wade keeps robbing in, yep. um, in 310 to Yuma. Ooh, I like this it. You're tying end. it all together, Jed. It's all tied together. This is the end. The big, the big business is coming in and getting rid of the little guy and the stage is out of business. And so these, these rich folks show up who can just afford to you know they they want to they want to get to uh bisbee or they want to get to contention i forget which direction they're going and and the stage is no you know it's physically there but it's not in business anymore and they've got enough money that they could just well i'm going to buy it and i'm going to buy all the horses i'm not going to you know rent horses i'm going to buy all the horses and buy just to make this trip and so uh there's you know that's the reason there's a special run going and um yeah the, the, these characters to whom money is is you know so uh an afterthought um you know it, uh, put up against these 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 characters who you know have very real problems uh, that they're trying to solve and they're all thrown together in a um uh in a in a in a small place in this, in this stage. And, and when the stage is uh, robbed, um, things go, uh, you know, it, it, suddenly they're out in the middle of the desert. Money doesn't mean shit. They've mm-hmm. got a, there's a bunch of money <laughs> that's, that's been robbed, but if you can't get out of the desert with it, it doesn't mean anything. And suddenly, you know, the values uh, who's strong and who's weak, you know, who has power completely change um yeah you know and and uh uh, you know alliances change values change you know the people the most genteel uh civilized folks in the uh movie you know they're sort of utter depravity (laughs) the things that they do for money are, are laid laid bare you know that you understand you know the frederick marsh character uh, what uh, uh, you know? How he made his fortune, and um, you know, and and what just sort of real diabolically evil shit it is that he just mm-hmm. does, you know, with a you know the the people robbing the stage say, yeah, we've got guns out here doing this, but you know you rob people all the time just with, you know, pen and paper and, and, and seeing the yeah. sweeping, the sweeping power 
of that being the um, the order of the day. Um, uh, that I, I do think that uh, three ten to West uh, Yuma is also wrestling with, especially in the expanded, um, you know, in the two thousand seven, um, really continuing to unpack yes. that. You the know, economic, you, you, you yeah. come to see Ben Wade as you know, just kind of last of the independents. You know, he's just a guy out here living, and uh, <laughs> you know, he maybe Evans. he's robbing sta- stages. Oh, ben, ben, yeah. Yeah, he's robbing stages, uh, but the stages are robbing these guys, and the train's yes. robbing the stages, and the you know it, it's it, it you know in the end you know he's the villain because the rich people he's a pain in the ass to the rich people uh, who he's uh, you know taken taken from them, uh, but everybody's out after him because they've said you know. The, the people who control the <laughs> the press uh, say, yeah, well, he's he's your problem. And really the problem is, uh, you know, that they're very small people being swept away by, by great forces. So um, th- that runs through all of these films, but uh, is especially present here in Ombre. Um, and yeah, I, I really enjoy the film. It's got so many great lines, you know, the, the yeah. Leonard, uh, you, you read his stuff um, so much for the dialogue and, and the, the delivery of these lines by Richard Boone, by um, Martin Balsam and, and, and Paul Newman, but especially in this film by Diane Salento are, yes. are priceless. They're really great. Um, so I love this movie. Uh, I, you know, I've watched it two or three times in the last uh, couple of weeks. So um I don't know next time how long it'll be till I watch it again, but uh, I always, always like it more than I thought I would. Um, every time I see it, I'm like, yeah, I remember that movie. It was pretty good. And then I watch it. Yeah. No, this is, I like this a lot. Yeah. I would say that these first three that we've talked about are definitely the highlights for me. They kind of go downhill in the next three uh, personally. Um, they're, they're entertaining. They're worth watching, but they don't um, quite live up to this, uh, as you were saying, cinematic universe that is <clears throat> 310 to Yuma uh, all the way up through Ombre by far. Our next one is The Moonshine War. And I should say these three were totally new to me, um, which is directed by Richard Quine, who I love his comedies that he made with um, Jack Lemon, especially. I, I covered a couple of those with Megan Abbott when we did a Judy Holiday episode. Uh, he directed some of those. Um, Quine is great. And uh, you are having a film that is based on a novel by the same name, Elmore Leonard, which had come out just a year earlier. Screenplay by Elmore Leonard this time. You have Patrick McGowan, Richard Widmark, Alan Alda, Will Gear. So talk to me about this one. We found it. Uh, well, actually, one of my friends happened to have this on their Plex server. So I was able to watch it that way. But I know it's also on YouTube, although you had to warn me that um, like it cuts off just a minute before the end. And then there was a minute in a separate YouTube video, <laughs> that kind of thing. There was. It's hard. It's not an easy one to find. So this was my first time seeing it. Um, okay. And I've wanted to see it for a long time. Um, and 
it is not a great film. No. But it does have all the elements that, that you want work. from yeah. an Elmore Leonard uh, adaptation. I should say that um, Lee Hazelwood, the singer and pop producer, you know, who wrote These Boots Are Made For Walking for Nancy Sinatra, he plays the heavy, the um, the psycho in this movie. Yes. Um, and My he goodness. is fantastic. Really great. He's one of those country characters. and country brains. Sometimes they're great at this. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he, uh, he's got this dopey dead eyed look to him that you never can penetrate and understand. Mm-hmm. Is he completely dim or is he a, just a, psycho who like a jim thompson character who knows it's advantageous for people to underestimate him and so he uh you know he kind of plays dumb um but what a name duel duel yeah and duel is the name actually of the the main character of uh uh the desperado movies that elmore leonard wrote elmore leonard in the 80s wanted to make a tv show a western tv show called desperado uh, and so he he uh, wrote a pilot film and it made a made for TV film starring Alex MacArthur of L.A. Takedown fame and tying uh, uh, it back to Michael Mann. Yeah. Yeah. And, and William Friedkin's uh, Rampage was the star of that. So and it's his rising star that uh, by the time they the network wanted to uh, make a TV show out of it, he said, no, I don't want to be tied to a TV show. So. They did end up making uh, five of these Desperado Westerns um, made for TV films in just like a two year period, 1987 to 1989. And they're not bad. They're, they're actually one of them is written by Larry Cohen. And oh, wow. um, yeah, Daniel Pine wrote one and um, Wish, Wisher, Wishman, the, the screenwriter, of the Terminator wrote wrote one, but Elmore Leonard wrote the first one and the, the character's name is Duel. So that popped out at me uh, that, yeah, he's got a duel in this one. I have not read The Moonshine War, but uh, what a great performance there. And it strikes me watching The Moonshine War, I think I watched it three times, that it's the two main characters. It's Alan Alda and Patrick McGowan who are the weak link yes. here. That the the I think if they had been different performances, uh, the, yeah, this really could not, have been a great film. Yeah, they it, I don't know if they get overpowered too easily or they're just yeah it doesn't quite work. Um, the 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 accents are really grating. They're southern accents, and and Patrick McGowan starts the film off, and he's this uh, he's supposed to be southern american and he's also drunk and so he's he's really slurring and he's really slurring in a bad southern accent yeah and instead and it never really lets up the whole film alan alda's accent and patrick mcguin's accent are both very grating and watching it over and over you know, I was able to kind of let that slide and, and get into the characters more and get into. And I do think if you replace those two performances, you got a really much better film. You know, if, if you had 
someone instead of Patrick McGowan's just kind of ugly uh, slurring. Um, you know, and it's a film that has some really great faces, some mugs in the cast, mm-hmm. but like you have Bo Hopkins in this movie. Put Bo yeah. Hopkins in as one of the main guys and like swap those out. Tom Skerritt. Yeah. Tom Skerritt shows up for like a second. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Put so, them up there. Imagine. And I so, love and this Alan is... Alda and Patrick McGowan and other stuff. Just mm-hmm. not this movie. Yeah. If you, uh, it, it's very similar to, you know, this is very uh, Elmore Leonard territory. This uh, Kentucky moonshining um, prohibition era. You know, he would later in uh, near the end of his career uh, wrote a character named uh, Carlos Webster, uh, who was a. Uh, the TV show Justified is based on Raylan uh, Givens, a uh, an Elmore Leonard character who shows up in a few novels uh, and also a short story called Fire in the Hall, where he's a, mm-hmm. a U.S. Marshal. Uh, and, and he's, he's, uh, brought back to his home, his hometown, you know, his, his stomping grounds in Kentucky yeah. after being in Miami and, and in, uh, Pronto, he's in, even in Italy. Uh, but, um, so he, he's this, you know, very urban. Yeah, and there's cowboy. a Boyd in this. I remember zeroing in on yeah. like, it's a Boyd Caswell instead of a Boyd Crowder. Yeah. Well, the TV show justified. I love the TV show, uh, but I will say I think the TV show gets better the further it gets from Elmore Leonard's source material. It becomes mm-hmm. kind of its own thing with Elmore Leonard sort of sensibilities and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But the the show gets better the further away. Well, I think the the Carlos Webster books are much closer, much closer to the justified TV show. And so if, mm. if you want to read something that's like justified, you know, don't necessarily, uh, you can get the Raylan book. It's a, it's a collection of, of, uh, you know, little novellas featuring the Raylan character. And that is closer to the justified TV show. In fact, they used those stories in the, in the TV show, but um, the, the Carlos Webster books starting with the hot kid are really what, you know, the justified TV show feels like, except that they're set in prohibition era. The hot kid Kentucky. is, is so, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Hot kids. Great. Moonshine war is kind of, uh, you know, if, if you, it's similar territory, it's moonshiners in Kentucky and it's, um, uh, well, I'm, I haven't read it either, but the, the movie is, you know, it is dealing yeah. with a lot of these same kinds of characters and you got these, um, federal police uh, sparring with the local police who are in business with the moonshiners. And the story in the, in the film is that uh, um, Patrick McGowan is a federal uh, officer. He's a, um, who's, who's, you know, he's a prohibition officer and he is coming to town on uh, where his old army buddy, Alan Alda, uh, playing a uh, character named Sun um, has a he's a bootlegger and supposedly legend has it is sitting on a huge cache of moonshine. He is waiting for prohibition to be repealed, and then he's gonna have all this moonshine to sell. And um, the uh, Patrick McGowan character comes in trying to 
trying to sniff it out. He wants to buy it. Um, and he's in league with some gangsters uh, that come into town to try and take it away. And if you've seen the movie Lawless, um, the um, I forget the director's name all of a sudden. Uh, the, the, he did the proposition and the um, Hillcoat. Triple Nine. Oh. And yeah, John Hillcoat. You see John Hillcoat's Lawless, which is based on a novel. The novel, I think, was probably influenced by uh, uh, Elmore. I should say it's probably either influenced by Moonshine War or they're both influenced by the same true, true-ish stories because mm-hmm. they're very similar uh, structure. It's, it's, you know, controlling this illegal substance uh, that's highly lucrative and, and the means that the uh, the gangsters go about to um, get a hold of it is you know s- squeezing this community of of people these kind of hard scrabble folks who are all only getting by because they they make moonshine you know their their farms aren't aren't cutting it um, and you know he they come in and they squeeze them one by one because the holdout. Uh, isn't isn't giving them what they want and um uh, lawless is a better movie i like lawless a lot but yeah. moonshine war really has all the elements to be a very memorable good film uh i think it's hampered by those those two uh lead performances just being you know if, if you cast someone hand, uh, handsomer you know if if this had been paul newman or timothy oliphant doing those those roles uh, you know, I think maybe you got a hit. Um, I think the tone was off a little bit too. Like, um, some of the comedic menace, um, especially like with Widmark, like that horrifying scene in the diner where they make this couple strip out of their clothes and take yeah. their clothes, and it's it's so twisted. And then there's that, and then there's like like a scene that's just very matter of fact with Alan Alda and you're like what movie are we in now and so I think some of it was the tone as well it yeah but you found a really interesting um behind the scenes um piece of research about an actress in the movie Melody Johnson so I'm gonna let you uh, fill us in on that uh sure well she didn't have a big career uh, in Hollywood. I don't know how much TV uh, maybe she uh, did, but she she was in Coogan's Fluff, the Don Siegel film with uh, Clint Eastwood, and you know, handful of other other movies and uh, you know guest spots. It looks like on a lot of TV shows, um, but she quit uh, as an Elmore Leonard character. Uh, didn't want to be, um, you know, uh, face these kind of dark dwindling days of, of, uh, you know, not quite the, you know, prettiest girl in the room anymore, um, career. And she started writing and she wrote, yeah. uh, mysteries. And I, this is news to me. I don't, I'm not familiar with her stuff. I have not read it, but apparently had pretty, pretty good career. Uh, and, um, yeah, on her webpage, uh, she's credited in the film as Melody Johnson. Uh, I think she publishes under in her webpage is uh, Melody Johnson Howe, H-O-W-E. Okay. Um, 
but uh, yeah, she tells the story of uh, meeting Elmore Leonard on the set of Moonshine War and him autographing a copy of the book for her. And then years later being included with him, and I think it was 1997, in a collection of uh, Year's Best Mystery Stories. Um, That's amazing. And, yeah, uh, and she said she yeah, was feeling like she'd come full him. circle there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she was too shy to tell him she wanted to be a writer. And I love that so much. Yeah, fantastic. Good for her. She went on and, and did that. Uh, you know, she found this thing she was good at and she got her independence and, you know, good for her. She's no Laura Leonard character is what we're saying, basically. Right. That is exactly what we're saying. Yes. Well, next we have uh, Valdez is Coming, um, which was a new one. Uh, you got Burt Lancaster here, directed by Edwin uh, Sharon. Susan Clark is in it. Richard Jordan, John Cipher. Uh, it's again based on an Elmore Leonard novel of the same name that was uh, written one year earlier. So talk to me about this one. I think this uh, there was an interesting quote when they like from critics talking about it takes a lot to make like Burt Lancaster devoid of personality or something. <laughs> I think he's you know, that's a little harsh. He's trying, but it is kind of the Charlton Heston playing a Mexican thing all over again. and. Uh, yeah, this is not great. It is, it's watchable. There's some stuff about it. It might have been a good episode of television or a shorter movie, I have to say. How about you? Uh, well, it's one that I'd seen years ago and I watched it because it was uh, an Elmore Leonard adaptation. I did, I read the book this week and I enjoyed the oh, book. Wow. Okay. Um, book's pretty good. Uh, the film, I don't think it's bad. I think it, I mean, yes. Burt Reynolds in, uh, I'm or sorry, Burt Lan Lancaster yeah. in Brownface is pretty jarring to look yeah. at. Uh, and especially because the tone changes a lot. Like there's there's a couple of scenes. It just looks like he's got shoe polish smeared yes. all over his face. Yeah, it's uh, and awkward. I, you know, I was thinking, yeah. was he coming out of a fire? I don't remember there being a fire in the previous scene, but it looks like he's just sooty. You know, but he's still got these, you know, bright blue eyes shining through this <laughs> this yeah. really bad brown face uh, job. But, uh, you know, if you can if you can move past that, I do think that there's a pretty serviceable like the revenge story. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the book is better. Um at, at getting into the uh, the the whys of of you know, all the characters, Burt Lancaster, Susan Clark, um, and, and, uh, Tanner, um, the, uh, the John Cypher character, um, it, it unpacks their, uh, their stories better and, and gives more context for them. The film, what you end up with is a, you know, kind of boilerplate revenge, uh, story. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it's, it, it comes from a, a good, uh, great, kernel of an idea where um uh it, it opens with a um burt lancaster is a um uh, a mexican american uh who Mom. is the constable of a yeah. small town here and and also rides that stage the uh the uh, stagecoach um in it uh as a shotgun um but he he used to be a soldier Mm -hmm. Those were sort of his glory days. And now he's this sort of, you know, well-liked small town lawman. 
And the beginning of the film, there's Hot a... in between, kind of like ombre a little bit. Yeah. 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 So there's a there's a shootout going as he yeah. he comes across, you know, this giant uh all these people shooting guns at a, a little shack. Yeah. Uh, and and the you know, there's this this powerful rich man who says, uh, there's an army deserter in there who murdered someone, uh, a yep. friend of mine. Um, I saw him in town and we chased him down here and he's holed up there. Well, Burt Lancaster says, okay, uh, has, you know, has anybody talked to him? Yeah. <laughs> he goes down to talk to the guy who's a, a black man. Uh, and there's a, uh, an Apache woman, uh, in there who's pregnant yeah. and she's, uh, he, he goes down to talk to them and, and find out. And the guy of course denies that he's an army deserter or that he killed anybody. And, but, uh, but he ends up getting killed. He ends up, uh, while, uh, Burt Lancaster is talking to him. Uh, one of the, the sharpshooters, Richard Jordan's character, uh, takes a shot, uh, you know, under a supposed, uh, white flag, truce flag parlay. Yeah, uh, so he him. breaks that mm-hmm. and the, uh, the, the, the black guy understandably opens fire, uh, and and um, Burt Lancaster's character is forced to kill him in self defense. Uh, but then, you know, it very quickly becomes, oh, you you shot the wrong guy, and he feels horrible about it, uh, especially because he's left behind this uh, pregnant Apache woman. Yes, with uh, no means to uh you know take care of herself for the her child and so he says well we we owe this woman yeah we owe her um you know this very wealthy man set everything in motion he ought to you know we everybody ought to chip in but this guy ought to chip in one hundred dollars yeah yeah uh, in the book, it's $500, but in yeah. the movie, it's uh, $100. Um, he's just, you know, $100 for this woman. And the 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 rich uh, man is, is so, you know, incensed by this that he, mm-hmm. you know, he, he throws Valdez out and... Um, they tie and him Valdez to a cross, back. which is Yeah, insane. they tie him to a cross across and send him out to the desert to die all of a sudden it's the last temptation of christ yeah yeah well and it's such a striking image the paperback book i remember had the image of him you know tied to that cross dragging through (laughs) and you can't stand up because it's too long and he you know he can't use his arms and it's i mean it's a it's a striking sadistic image and i do think that the film is kind of straddling that Italian Western and that studio Western line. It did feel like, yeah. And it's interesting because the next movie stars Clint Eastwood. But when I was watching this, I was like, ah, oh, you can see maybe they watched a couple of the Carbucci Westerns a little bit. Like, right. great silence. And we're going to use that. Yeah. Yeah. So I do think this is an awkward time in general. You know, this is New Hollywood is very very uh and it's you know infancy and of course it dies fast but uh you know it's there's clearly a still a studio element here but there's also a we've got to change with the times and we've got to become 
you know, a little more, a little hipper, a little more, yeah. uh, you know, whatever this wave is, we've got to catch it. And so I think that they are playing to that sort of uh, sadistic quality that is playing pretty well in uh you said the corbucci films and yeah yeah absolutely you know they and and so many of those guys those italians were making horror films and you know there is this kind of crossover between the the westerns and and the horror films um Mm -hmm. coming out of italy especially at the time well i think valdez is coming straddles that it's not quite one or the other, but it's an interesting in between sort of thing. So there is this, this real sadistic kind of tone to it um, that I think works. Um, I do, you know, if you can get past the jarring images of Burt Lancaster and Burt Lancaster, frankly, not giving one of his best performances, uh, there's not much personality there. You know, unfortunately, aside from the brown face, the other the other trick he's using to uh, make his characters is the accent. The accent's very bad. It's just very bad. You know, WH sound on in front of everything. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't get the feeling that his heart's in the wrong place. No, it's not like he's making fun of anybody. Caster's personality and like, he was probably really trying and right. you know, making it for more the than right he could reasons, chew. but no. Took it for the, yeah, shouldn't have, shouldn't have done this. You know, I'm trying to picture, you know, well, who could have, uh, you know, made this a more successful uh, picture and, you know, um, uh, maybe Ricardo Montalban or something like that yes. could have done this really well. Uh, but I, I like the film. It's not, you know, my favorite, uh, Richard Jordan is a pretty, uh, another character whose, whose performance is a little high pitched. And I, I wonder if that's trying to get in on that, uh, you know, that, that feeling of the new Westerns coming out of, uh, Europe, you know, yeah. uh, this, this really, uh, psychotic sort of character again, fleshed out a little he's more a little in the James book. Bond villain in places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. he's this kind of pathetic, yeah, pathetic bad guy uh, who's, uh, you know, because uh, he kind of falls he, apart at the end, like, which yeah. I love the ending. I have to say that was really good. Yeah. And the book such a good. Was it the same? The, it's the same in the book. It just it's ends without resolution. Yeah. Well, so if Elmore Leonard is is not liking what's on TV Western wise, because everybody ends up in a, in a, you know, mono a mono shootout in the, you kind of get backed into that corner here, but the resolution is not out of the, the TV playbook. Um, And it it is the same in, in the novel. Uh, The novel ends the same way. And it's, it's great. It's a, um, you know, these two men of, uh, you know, unbending will who's who's going to bend to who and um it's a good it, i think it's a good ending um a it's great ending yeah i think, I think the ending was my favorite part yeah i thought the beginning was striking the whole setup and then the ending and then the rest of it it was nah yeah i kind of checked <laughs> out yes 
Yeah. Well, it's it does, a really uh, good short movie, is what I'm saying. But yeah. Yeah. Well, it wasn't. It was 90 minutes, so I mean, it wasn't long. But yeah, it it doesn't maybe carry you along the the same. It's certainly not the breathless pace of the Tall T or no, uh, no not the, at all. Um, uh, and it doesn't hold the atmosphere. Doesn't hold like 310 to Yuma uh, no. did. But um, but I I like the film. It's not you know I like it better than, than the Moonshine War for sure. Yeah, I'm a little. I, I, I'm not sure which one I like better. Okay. I do think both have problems, but there's also, again, as an Elmore Leonard fan, I see a lot of. I think I might like the Moonshine War better. Okay. Except that I've now read the book Valdez is Coming, and I like that story. Like I, yeah. I like the book Valdez is Coming. I have not read the book Ombre, and I have not read the book Moonshine Wars. Uh, but I did read Valdez is coming and it's, it's pretty good. Um, I will say watching all the Westerns that I, I, I could, I watched the uh, Tom Selleck uh, last stand at Saber river. Have you seen that one by any chance? No. Well, I've never seen a, 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 a more humorless <laughs> Elmore Leonard adaptation. Than, oh no. And the, uh, <clears throat> the, 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 the Westerns aren't as funny as a lot of the crime novels are. Um, and, and none of them are jokey, but uh, last day at Saber River. a little wink, like a little yeah, There's, no, there's yeah. really none of that. It's a pretty leaden uh, adaptation. And, and at least, you know, Valdez is coming and Moonshine where I've got, they're at least tapping into some of that, uh, you know, what we love about Elmore Leonard uh, for it. So, um, and yeah, the next one, we have it. a little bit uh, more humor as far as, uh, at least in the Clint Eastwood, but that is also Clint Eastwood winking a little bit. And that's Joe Kidd, uh, directed by John Sturges. This is, I think, the first one I watched when I was doing these rewatches. Um, it was written by Elmore Leonard and co-stars Robert Duvall, who is amazing. And uh, John Saxon is in it. Uh, it's another revisionist Western, partly shot at the old Tucson studios. A couple of these were. I've actually never been there. They're going to reopen, I guess. And so I need to get down and check those out. So talk to me about your relationship with uh, Joe Kidd. When did you first see this one? I saw this one quite a while ago, and I really liked it. Um, I really liked it. Uh, this is probably I my favorite after ombre. Yeah. After ombre. Well, I, uh, I think I saw it because I was watching, uh, Clint Eastwood movies, not because mm -hmm. it was Elmore Leonard. I don't think I realized it was Elmore Leonard for a while, but, um, I, I really enjoy this one. I do think it's very successful as a funny film. The first 30 minutes of the film, Clint Eastwood yeah. is in the the town dude outfit mm -hmm. is very Elmore Leonard and uh yeah. it's you know he's this guy who's just kind of uh he, he doesn't give a shit he doesn't know why he's in jail <laughs> like what happened yeah, yeah he's just you know doing his own his own thing and you know people are getting all worked up about uh you know whatever movement the the uh mexicans are are 
pissed Land off at the reform. Anglos yeah. over, um, you know, the, the way they've been screwed over. And the Anglos are um, upset about uh, the the Mexican revolutionaries not, you know, not getting off respecting their, their, their way of life and their their, their legal system yes. right yeah. and and he's just doesn't doesn't really give a shit one way or the other no um and there's a great scene where there's this battle going on these uh, mexican revolutionaries led by john saxon in brown face are uh raiding the town uh to destroy records um you know land ownership records um just the same way their original land ownership yeah. records were supposedly destroyed in a fire. They come in and they stir things up, bust some folks out of t- jail and they're maybe trying to take a judge hostage. And Clint Eastwood kind of intervenes it minorly, just kind of getting the judge out of the way. I think he he's just yeah. been before the judge and uh, for some minor offenses. And um, I think he, it's never really explained, but I think he thinks yeah, maybe if I do this guy some favors, he'll do me some favors, yeah. you know, and, and he just kind of gets him out of the way. Yeah, he you can see the wheels turning a little. Yeah, yeah. He just kind of very casually walks the judge out of a dangerous situation. And then he goes and pours himself a beer and makes himself a sandwich and just watches. And he's yep. just sitting there watching the proceedings. And it's all very good fun, I think. Uh, things turn. He does have to take sides eventually when... Uh, Robert Duvall's exceedingly evil uh, yeah. land reform guy, landowner, comes in, and and again, he just he's this rich guy who uses. Rich guys are usually in Elmer Leonard. Don't trust those dudes. Yep. Well, he's the guy who you know he uses the law mm-hmm. as a weapon. You know, he yeah. understands that laws are in place to protect wealthy people. Like him from, from poor people, <laughs> you yeah. know, they isolate, and so he uses, you know, these legal means to uh, to disenfranchise poor folks, and and the only reason he doesn't give a shit about the politics really, except that it's somebody who wants some of what he's got, you know, who who says you've got too much. Uh, you know, you got to share. And uh, he's like, he's in there to shut that down. But, but he goes so far beyond uh, the pale when he becomes this hostage situation where he's demanding John Saxon surrender himself, where he's just going to start slaughtering, uh, slaughtering town folk. Um, and, yeah. and, and in a church and Clint yeah. Eastwood is among them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so he yeah. says, okay, well, self-preservation dictates that I choose a side here. And he's offended. He's offended on another level yeah, as well. Yeah. He's not a complete asshole, but but he's he's so neutral at the beginning and, you know, is forced to choose a side. And then, you know, uh, there's, there's shenanigans, uh, shootout shenanigans and, and some nice set pieces, none of which uh, measure up to the fantastic scene of crashing – uh, a steam train through a Amazing. building, just driving yes. it through town. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, another thing that I think makes this film successful for me is the Lalo Schifrin score. I was it's going to say that so much fun. 
It is. And in Westerns, I mean, of course, you think of Ennio Morricone and, you know, the classic Western scores. Um, Music plays such a big part of it. But in this one, this is the, you know, we've talked about the 310 to Yuma song working for that movie here. Oh, my God. The score was kind of stealing the show for me. Yes, it is. It's 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 fun and funky. And it also sounds like it it sounds almost like it could be you know, like a crime movie soundtrack from the early seventies, but it also has strings and sounds like a Western and, Mm -hmm. you know, it kind of vacillates, it goes back and forth. And I think it taps into it. It succeeds in a way that music is so key to the really great Elmore Leonard adaptations. You know, if if you think about uh, the way Get Shorty changed the way people did Elmore Leonard Mm -hmm. movies, so much of that is that great, that John Lurie score and those classic, uh, you know, kind of surf rock uh, songs employed in that movie. And then, of course, Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown, you know, has got that fantastic soul and, and R&B sc- uh, songs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even um, – uh, the uh, Out of Sight, the Soderbergh adaptation has got that oh. fantastic David Holmes score. I love his work yes. with David Holmes. And the David Holmes is, I think, kind of channeling what Lalo Schifrin's doing here. Yeah. I think you could almost switch out the Out of Sight and uh, Joe Kidd score and and have, you know, and have them work. They, they're very fun. And, you know, they tap into, you know, so many problems with adapting Elmore Leonard come from tone and not knowing, you know, some are too much. They're too serious and they're too just kind of boilerplate thrillery and Mm -hmm. others are way too loose and jokey and, you know, in in, in ways the books are not, Um, you know, I think Be Cool is so so bad uh Mm -hmm. um in 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 ways that even the book is not one of elmore leonard's best books but it's so much better than the movie um and the the tone of the the movie is so different um and and so off because it's it's going so broad um anyway i think one of the keys to a really great elmore leonard adaptation is music because it, yep. it holds that balance those elements of the thriller and, and the, the comedy yeah comedy is often or just even the, the tongue humor, but, but the, the, the way, sort of the cool. yeah, yeah the, the cool coolness. the whimsical yep. the yep. the sort of um the wind. observational absurdity of, yes. of things um I think I think music is a really important part. And, and, you know, I mean, going back to the moonshine one and maybe another element that didn't work so well there oh, was the God, soundtrack. The music. My God. Yeah, the music's bad. What was going and oh, my on? God, the ending the with ending that Roy with Orbison that song. song out of Ooh. nowhere. And the tone of that song is so jarring. It's like, where did this uh, come from? Did they just have it? From? It's, yeah, the studio it's notes. It's hilarious. We've got a song. We're going to plug We've it in right We've got a song, here. right. Yes. Uh, and I think another element that's key is the cast. Um, yeah. And who, who's in the roles, who's doing the work, and who can deliver this dialogue. Yeah. And I and think, I say, um, yeah, go for it. Well, I, I, I was going to say, uh, Joe Kidd is also a 
fucking beautiful movie. Oh the my god! Mountain yes. town yeah. and yeah. photography is so great. Uh, uh, Bruce Surtees did yes. the, the cinematography, cinematography, and it works. You know, he did also Ella Josie Wells and Highland Drifter. I'm yeah. sorry, Drifter. So you know, he and Pale Rider. Clint Eastwood likes using him, and and I think uh, he he understands uh, he he nails that photography. You know, uh, I used to live in Colorado, and I, I've got to say, nothing brings back that. Just I can feel what that those those scenes feel like uh, in that photography. You know, much better than uh, the other. You know, like. Valdez is coming or, or something yeah, like yeah. that. It didn't strike you the same way, but Joe kid looks great. It sounds great. It's mm-hmm. got some really fun moments. Uh, uh, something that I heard and I'm trying to remember where I heard this um, listening to interviews or, or something that apparently it was Joe Kidd was originally more uh, J- the John Saxon role was much larger, and there was sort of ah. a like they were the sort of dual okay protagonist okay. forces and 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 maybe Clint Eastwood uh, from what I push I've, back on that I would imagine a little yeah, yeah I think he's like no I'm the star I need to be the and and so perhaps this would have been. More recognizably, Lenardian or, yes. or something. If uh, if it had survived um, with with the the two of them, because you know, I mean, going back to three ten from Yuma, he does that that dynamic. Yeah, and tall team over the, the and over two and people over again on opposite sides. Mm-hmm. People on opposite sides, and I mean, even out of sight is that you know, yeah, it, Karen and Jack. Yeah. It's she's the the yeah uh, the law the law the and law. he's the outlaw and and you know it's a romantic connection rather than just a romantic one but it's a um you have that yeah, in Rumpunch or Jackie Brown again you have uh, now he's like kind of in the middle he's a bail bondsman but still it's one side of the law and yeah it's great yeah absolutely and I mean the he did a um he wrote a TV movie. Uh, High Noon Two Part Two: oh, wow. The Return of Will Kane. And I got to say, that's not, it's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea to have a sequel to a made-for-TV yes. sequel. You know, replacing one of Gary the greatest Cooper films of all time. Uh, yeah. It's. I liked it. It's a good. It's, it's a good movie. It does not need to be. It's a western. <laughs> Really does not need to be high high noon part two. Lee Majors is not playing the same character Gary Cooper was. I mean, I mean, their names are the same, but they are different people. But mm-hmm. but he works this three ten to Yuma thing again with uh, uh, David Carradine this time. So it's David Carradine and Lee Majors, uh, and, and uh, as more or less like a bounty hunter and and a. Uh, uh, and a prisoner um and they you know work together throughout this thing and it it's pretty good but he's interesting that is his thing again and again yeah and the desperado movies uh you know go into that over and over again so yeah he really works works that it's a great dynamic to work he clearly mined it for years 
And what I love is by looking at these Westerns, we're sort of seeing where this started for Elmore mm-hmm. Leonard and then would go into his crime movies. So, Jed, we might have to, you know, reconvene and tackle his crime stuff next, I think. But yeah. this was such a pleasure. I want to thank you so much. And you did so much research. I learned a ton as always. And yeah, just thank you. Is there anything else like before I let you go that you wanted to add for people listening? Well, I will say uh, real quick, the end of the movie out of sight mm-hmm. where you know, it, it's a different ending than the book. Yes, uh, Where uh, you know, Karen has got her man and she's taking him back to prison, mm-hmm. but they're waiting on another prisoner. Samuel L. Jackson comes in. Yes. And Guy who's escaped. Yes. Right. Uh, so it's very clear. She is hoping Jack breaks out of prison again and they can do this over again. Uh, well, it's the same ending really as the 1957 310 to Yuma. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he, Glenn Ford gets on the train with him and he says, why, why did you get on the train? I'm like, well, I've been, I've already broken out of Yuma a couple of times and I'll, um, and so, you know, it is this callback in out of sight to three ten to you. Yes, that really that's works. an excellent point. But Elmer Leonard didn't write either one of those endings. <laughs> that is not Scott the ending. Frank might have been a fan. Yeah. Well, yeah, Scott Frank's great. Uh, but uh, I, I, I thought that was interesting. Like, oh, this is a very Elmer Leonard thing. You know, that Elmer Leonard. Except didn't it's do. not. Yes, Halstead Wells and <laughs> Scott Frank. I love it. Right. So uh, that was one observation I, I wanted to shoehorn in there. Ooh, that is a good observation. Well, Jed, thank you so much. This is a great way to kick off the weekend and you'll have to come back for sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks so much, Jen. I really enjoy doing this. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.